All right. Hello, everybody. This is the Chainlink God podcast, everything full of link pills as usual. So today, like last time, I have a special guest, the one and only Crypto Oracle. How are you doing today? Good. Glad to be back. Yes. Lots of, lots of link pills to be shared today. So in this one, we're going to be basically covering the various different Chainlink services that are available uh, today and will be available into the future, kind of the, the core focuses with price feeds, proof reserve, uh, VRF with any API keepers and eventually a blockchain abstraction layer. So kind of to just kick things off initially, we discussed this in the previous podcast, but just to set a baseline understanding, why do smart contracts need oracles at all? Yeah, so again, this is just to set the baseline. If you want a more in-depth uh, understanding of this, I would refer to the previous podcast, but essentially blockchains are isolated networks and they perform a very basic set of functions. It's kind of like a simple computer that doesn't have internet. And these blockchains, you know, these isolated computers, they, they're really just focused on keeping internal state of a ledger. And a ledger is just a bunch of people have money at certain addresses and they can exchange those and the, the ledger will update on who owns what. And, and, and the blockchain is just focused on keeping an internal state of that ledger. And it does so by someone sends a transaction, they wanna, they wanna send money from one, one address to another, they send that transaction, it refers to its internal state, which is you know, all these public addresses with funds, it may refer to an Oracle report that's already on chain and it will check, you know, basically it will check across these predefined rules on whether that transaction is valid. It'll check the private key. It may check, uh, see how, if that public address has enough funds. And then if valid, it will update the ledger and then you have a new state of the ledger. And, beca and because this is so simple and only requires internal state to function, it's very deterministic, meaning you know the code is going to run exactly as it's meant to. You know the ledger is always going to be valid. You know the data stored on the ledger is immutable. It's kind of like because the, this you know the centralized computer blockchain is disconnected from everything outside of it. It can't really get viruses. You know that's just a simple analogy from the outside world. So you can't corrupt the data. It can't corrupt the consensus mechanism of the blockchain. However, because it's so simple, it really limits what you can do. In particular, it limits your ability to verify external state or impact external state, like impacting uh, external systems. And this is really the, the Oracle problem. And the Oracle is just a separate piece of infrastructure that provides these services dealing with the external state, you know, the external world. And it syncs those on the, on the blockchain. So that could be to go get data, bring it onto the blockchain that could be perform some computations that then get synced onto the blockchain. And this separation of the two creates a lot of security because it, it allows you to get all the things you need off chain without affecting the internal state. Or it, it, if it does infect uh, a, a smart contract, that smart con only that smart contract uh, is affected and not the entire consensus mechanism. So it allows you to do a lot of things you can never do on the blockchain itself while still keeping the blockchain really secure. So now that we have an understanding of why you need an Oracle network, 
let's look very briefly before we get into all the types of Oracle solutions that Chainlink's providing. Let's look a little bit, let's define Chainlink and, and, and how it can provide these. So, so Chainlink is really, I would say three things. It's a protocol. So it's a generalized blockchain agnostic framework for building any kind of Oracle network that supports any blockchain or layer two. So it, it, that's one. Second, it, it's a network. So it has any number of independent Oracle networks running at the same time in parallel. So you have a framework for building Oracle networks. You have an actual network that's running Oracle services. And then you have a bunch of pre-built solutions that we're gonna to discuss today that the Chainlink Labs team has helped cultivate and basically gives developers, you know, teams plug and play Oracle solutions so they don't have to build them from scratch. And these three, uh, you know, kind of create three key value props. One, it allows developers to build any type of Oracle solution in a permissionless manner using that protocol framework. It, two, it allows horizontal scalability because, because the, because the network is heterogeneous and there's not one set uh, you know, Oracle solution, you can have a bunch of Oracle networks running in parallel that are providing standalone services. And this allows it to basically service any Oracle need. And three, it bootstraps Oracle services so to accommodate user demand. This way, projects don't have to worry about building their own Oracle solutions from scratch. It's very similar to, to APIs today where you know, if Uber had to go build a GPS, uh, a GPS system, well, they couldn't innovate very fast. So they had to build a messaging system or they had to build a payment systems. In this regard, dApps don't need to worry about how to go get data. Not to say they don't verify what's been done, but they don't have to worry about how to go get certain data, how to validate certain data, how to perform, you know, build Oracle networks that perform certain computations. They can just kind of plug and play these. And, and and these have been time tested. These are built upon you know, research. There's open source code. And, and so this, this really accelerates the development of smart contracts. So with that foundation, let's maybe go into some of the services that you know, are currently on Chainlink. Yeah, just, just to kind of re reiterate on that point, I think that kind of the framing that you should look at Chainlink as is that it's kind of like the low layer foundational protocol and built upon that protocol are these independent heterogeneous networks. In each of those networks, the users can build those networks or they can be kind of bootstrapped by the Chainlink Labs team to provide a kind of a pre-built solution that can be easily plugged in into different applications which are collectively funded and supported by users. So one of the primary, the first and probably the most well-known service that Chainlink Oracles and the Chainlink Oracle Network provides is price feeds which essentially their primary use case is providing financial market data to the DeFi ecosystem. So that was essentially the first market demand for oracles was price data. And once this price data was available, that essentially led to the growth of all these different financial protocols, decentralized uh, exchanges, money markets, derivatives, a whole plethora of different types of applications. Once this data is available, they can be basically plugged into these price feed contracts. So when you actually look at the structure of Chainlink price feeds, it's actually a on-chain reference contract that 
stores the current price of a specific asset. So like the ETHUSD price feed has an ETHUSD reference contract and any other contract can plug into the ETHUSD price reference contract and on demand basically pull data, the current value or a historical value of the ETHUSD price. I was just going to point out that this is really important for people to understand that the reference contract stores the price and it, it continually is updated all the time by these Chainlink Oracle networks. So it's it's not the the DAP doesn't have to call the Chainlink contract or, or, or you know, request new data to be updated all the time. It's already updated and they just refer to it when they need it. Yeah, I think that's a key point. Because when you look at the different types of Oracle network models Chainlink has, the one that people intuitively see with Chainlink, and it was kind of in the original white papers, the request and receive. So as a user, you would generate a request to Chainlink nodes. They would get that request, go fetch the data, and then return it to you in a different transaction. But here, the data is already on chain. It's in this reference contract. So contracts can go and uh, query and ping this, this contract to immediately get data within a single transaction. Yeah, and the other point too is that because you have a reference contract, you can share that price data much easier because then multiple teams can ping that contract when they need instead of every team needing to make a request every time they need data. So it's actually a lot more cost efficient, uh, particularly for DeFi where a lot of projects need the same price feeds. Yeah, that that's essentially what leads to Chainlink's economies of scale because in, you know if there's a hundred users who need the link to USD price. There's not a hundred different link USD price feeds that wouldn't make any sense. There's one US one decentralized link USD price feed that all the users collectively fund and basically pool their fees together so that all the all the users are getting the highest quality Oracle network because of the security budget is so large, but they're only paying like a fraction of the total costs. So that 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 essentially provides users the highest quality oracles at the lowest cost, which is kind of why we've seen Chainlink price feeds take off as much as they've had. And so when you're looking at the at these price feeds, there is, there's a plethora of different types of data that's available. So when we're looking at the in-production feeds, there's over 350 different Chainlink price feeds just today and more being launched by the week for users because it's launched. Uh, these feeds are launched based on user demand, but we see these feeds for uh, cryptocurrency prices, maybe that's BTC to USD, or maybe that's ETH to BTC, those different exchange rates. But we also see things like stable coins because stable coins don't always hold their peg. They're supposed to be a dollar, but they can trade off the peg. We also see like fiat currency for like foreign exchange, like the Euro against the yen. Uh, we also see things like commodities, like gold against USD, and even more traditional financial products like indices, like the S&P 500 or the uh, different indexes of different um, stock markets around around the world in different countries, and even specific equities. Like with synthetics, we've seen Tesla USD, we've seen Apple USD, we've seen Microsoft, we've seen all these different uh, equities being launched for these derivative products. Yeah, and, and just two other points to add to that. Um, you know, these, these, these reference contracts are updated based on a deviation. So every time the price changes a specific amount, maybe that's 0.5%, maybe on a maybe on a faster chain like Starkware, that's like super, you know, like it could even be on time based and on those, but they, they, they update on some type of schedule. 
And the other thing was uh, about the economies of scale. If you had, if a bunch of projects were using a bunch of different Oracle networks, you would split all the resources across all these different uh, Oracle networks and you would actually not be able to get the amount of data quality and the amount of decentralization you want on each one and you would kind of dilute the quality of each one and then you, if you just combine them well you're just combining a bunch of oracle networks with diluted quality whereas if you put all the resources into one you can get all the features that you want you basically get a, a enterprise grade data and security for a fraction of the cost but if you split it across all these different networks it, it, it dilutes the value of each one Plus, it doesn't even make a lot of sense in regards to Chainlink's already, like we're going to talk about this, but it's already decentralized across so many fronts. And you're, it's like saying I'm going to back the Ethereum blockchain with the Cardano blockchain or something like that. Like you already are so decentralized and have so many, uh, you know, security features in place. You don't need a, it's another separate network, which, which usually would just dilute the quality is uh, most, you know, compared to what Chainlink offers. So just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, yeah, I'm glad you did. Those are those are two key points on the on the update frequency. H how often a chain like price feed on like a specific blockchain, the speed of that depends upon the speed and the cost of the underlying blockchain. So Chainlink itself, the Oracle networks, they can operate at the native speed of any any blockchain. So we see chain like price feeds on Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, uh, in layer twos like Polygon, XDAI, and Starkware, and eventually Arbitrum and Optimism. So it price feeds on a slower, more expensive network like Ethereum that's more congested usually, that is bound by its update speed by, uh, you, you need to be able to produce reliable updates even when taking into account the worst case situation. So maybe during a, a good case, you could update a price feed every 0.1%, you know, when volatility is low and network congestion is low. But let's say, you know, like the, the crash we saw uh, the week before where prices fell 50, 60%, you know, within a day and the Ethereum network gas costs went up to 2000 Gwei, you know, those are the situations you need to prepare for, for an Oracle network. So the, the update frequency is tuned so that Chainlink price feeds continue to provide reliable data in a consistent way across any type of market activity, whether that's blockchain congestion or just market activity volatility, because the kind of the key point is Chainlink feeds, sometimes people, there's a narrative where like Chainlink feeds only update every 10 minutes. That was the case a couple of years ago, but now, like you said, it's a deviation threshold. So if it's 0.5%, that means a Chainlink price feed updates every time the price moves up or down 0.5%. So that that's basically provides fresh data uh, during extreme volatility while not wasting um, wasting updates when there's no volatility because the price would be the exact same every time. Yeah, and, and, and the update frequency is really, you know, kind of like you alluded to, gonna depend on what chain you're on. Like no one's gonna offer 0.1 deviation on Ethereum right now. It's just, it, it's too expensive. It, it doesn't make sense. Like actually no one's even really trying to offer any updates on Ethereum besides chain. Like uh, almost no oracles are doing that. Um, but chains like Avalanche and chains like Starkware and, these, and Arbitrum and Optimism, these fast chains, these could update, they could update maybe on time because it's so cheap and fast, or they could update on a very, very low frequency. And this will allow, you know, derivatives protocols, things that are more sensitive to price movements and, you know, 
algorithmic trading. And so we should see a real advancement in these high-speed DeFi markets as we go into layer two or we go to these high-speed blockchains like Avalanche and things like that. Yeah. So like when, when if you're like synthetics and you want to build a leverage trading uh, like perpetuals market, the amount of leverage you can offer users depends upon the deviation threshold of the price feed. Because if you have a high amount of leverage, but a update frequency that's not fast enough, then users would get instantly liquidated with the next price update. So these like financial products with a lot of leverage, we'll see those on layer two, because not only is the layer two cheaper for users, but it can support price feeds to update at the frequency required for such high leverage applications. So kind of like you alluded to, we'll likely see much, much lower uh, threshold deviations on these layer two and these more server farm scalable L1 networks. So kind of kind of segueing into this next aspect, it's important to look at how does the, how do chain link price feeds actually determine the price of an asset? You know, do they just, you know, a node operator go on google.com and search the price of Apple? Like, no, no, that's not, that's not how it works. So really when you look at chain link price feeds, there's actually three layers of decentralized aggregation. And that's, that's really key because if you don't have decentralization, you have a single point of failure and you defeat the entire purpose of using smart contracts in the first place. So this first one is the data source. So when you look at the data sources that Chainlink oracles pull from, they're not pulling straight from raw exchange data because there can be flash crashes, there can be wash trading. It's, it, it's raw unrefined data. So what Chainlink price feeds actually pull from are professional data aggregation firms. And these firms, which already provide data to uh, leading enterprises and different trading desks who move billions of dollars. And they, you know, these, these, these importantly, they're paid data subscriptions, they're paid APIs. So that basically means that they're providing quality and uptime assurances. And Chainlink can support these high quality data feeds because Chainlink nodes natively have the ability to handle API keys, credentials, passwords, basically. And the Oracle networks that can't do that are limited to free open APIs and even if those free open APIs are data aggregators, there's no quality guarantees, there's no uptime guarantees. So that, that's a large risk for other protocols, but with Chainlink pulling from these data aggregators, the da these data aggregators are basically taking the role of providing market coverage, which is key. Because when you have something like Bitcoin, there's no single Bitcoin exchange. There's hundreds of them, and there's thousands of different uh, trading markets against different currencies. So what data providers essentially do is they generate a volume weighted average price across all of these different exchanges, taking into account outliers and taking into account market crashes and wash trading to generate a single global price for an asset that can actually be relied upon. Yeah, I just wanted to point out, yeah, the, these data sources, they reflect an av a volume weighted average of all the trading environments. So that's centralized exchanges and decentralized exchanges, maybe even trading desks as well. So, you, so each data source that Chainlink pulls from is already an aggregated price. So I think that's important. And, and that market coverage can dynamically respond to shifts in volume because they're pulling from all these exchanges. If volume starts to shift on an exchange, these data aggregators will automatically account for that. And they also are, you know, they have lots of experience in how to clean data. You know, 
removing outliers, removing wash trading. We know there's a lot of wash trading on certain exchanges uh, in the cryptocurrency space. And so the ability to automatically shift when volume shifts is very key to always having a reliable price. Because if you're only pulling from a couple exchanges, if volume shifts, you actually are not accounting for that. Your Oracle mechanism does not automatically account for that. You could go in later after the fact and add one, but that requires a lot of maintenance. That's, you can't do that in real time. And so this provides an automated way to always be tracking uh, what's happening in the market. And, and the, la the last point I wanted to just reemphasize is, again, these are paid subscriptions. Like they're, they have a clear financial incentive to, be, to provide high uptime, so they're always online and to provide quality data. Whereas the free API does not have those direct incentives. They're not, they're, they don't have a, a contract with you to actually maintain that data. Yeah, those are really key points. Uh, on the aspect of market coverage, I feel like that's an aspect that people don't fully grasp. Like if they see a token and they see this token's only trading on Binance and that's like 99% of the liquidity is on Binance and they're thinking, well, can I just pull from Binance? Clearly all the liquidity is there. Well, you know, like, like you said, it, liquidity can shift. Where liquidity exists today is not necessarily going to be guaranteed tomorrow. So if a new exchange pops up or an existing one and the liquidity shifts and it fragments across many, many different exchanges, if you were just tracking Binance because you assume Binance would always be the only exchange with liquidity, your Oracle network, depending upon a single exchange, the market coverage it would be tracking would keep reducing and because it reduces, the cost of attack goes down because the amount of liquidity you need to manipulate the price that the Oracle consumes uh, becomes cheaper. So when, when you're pulling from these premium data aggregators who are automatically already tracking the entire market, the only way to manipulate the price is to manipulate the entire market-wide price. And at that point, the Oracle would be returning the true correct value. Yeah, I was just going to also point out that you know, some people are like, oh, well, I just pull from a few exchanges, mostly fine. First, like, you know, we already talked about uh, volume shifting, but also think about DeFi growing to secure more value and, and DeFi supporting more real-time markets on these L2 chains that are very sensitive to price movements. Data quality becomes increasingly, increasingly important because it's, it, it's what's actually determining whether you get liquidated or you don't, or whether you get a good, you know, your slippage amount. Like this is going to become more and more and more important as we go to L2. It's not just something you can, you know, think about trivially as, you know, oh, I'll just go from a few exchanges. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think that basically what it comes down to is that data quality. You know, it's the garbage in, garbage out problem. You need oracles to be sourcing from high quality sources that are incentivized to return accurate and uh, uh, reliable data. However, a Oracle network that depends upon a single data aggregator is for all intensive purposes, basically a centralized Oracle. Because if that one data provider goes down or they manipulate their data, well, you know, the data being given to smart contracts is manipulated. So that that's, that's an aspect that should be avoided. And so how Chainlink avoids that is that each uh, individual Oracle node, when they're fetching data for like an ETHUSD price update, they're not just fetching from one data aggregator they're actually fetching from multiple data aggregators and then taking the median value between those. So what that effectively does is it mitigates the issue of API downtime or when the data source goes down, 
because if a single data source goes down, but you're pulling from a multitude of data sources, it has absolutely zero effect on the medium value, median value. So that, that, that basically provides additional uptime guarantees, but it also provides tamper resistance, both in the sense that you're using multiple sources of truth. So the, the, to manipulate data, you would need to manipulate more sources, which becomes exponentially harder, but also each data provider, they have their own volume weighted average price uh, calculation methodology where they've refined over the years, often decades to prevent spoofing, to prevent uh, different types of market manipulation. And so when you have one, if you had one method of generating a volume weight average price, somebody could find a way to manipulate that mechanism. But if you're using uh, dozens of different data sources and each one has their own uh, volume weighted calculation methodology, it becomes increasingly harder to find a flaw to uh, basically manipulate the data. So that, that increases the tamper resistance, ultimately leading to higher data quality. So a kind of an interesting dynamic is that when you have a pool of data sources and uh, many of the Chainlink feeds, not all of them, they each Chainlink node within that network is pulling from three sources. But if there's a pool of seven sources, that's actually 35 different unique combinations. So each, each Oracle node would be pulling from a different combination of data sources. And if you double the pool size, so instead of selecting three from seven, you're selecting three from 14, the unique combination actually increases to 364. So the more data sources you pull from, the more combinations you have, and the more combinations you have, the more tamper resistance you have. So it's kind of the, it kind of gets to statistics at that point, but it's essentially the more, the more data sources, the more high quality data sources that nodes pull from, the more tamper resistant it becomes. Yeah, I think just to sum up, yeah, before we talked about the data source representing an aggregated value, now the individual node response is, is, is hardened itself. You know, it's, it's not relying on one data source. So you have strong uh, security, both from the data source and now also the individual node response. Yeah, it's essentially decentralizing the, 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 the data layer, both of the data provider themselves is already decentralized in the sense they're pulling from many exchanges and the Oracle node is, has a decentralized data aggregation methodology for multiple sources. However, you can't just use a single Chainlink Oracle node for delivery because if that single Chainlink node goes down, well then, you know, that's a centralized Oracle service and that is a single point of failure, again, regardless of how they fetch their data. So ultimately, when you're looking at Chainlink price feeds or really just more generally Chainlink Oracle networks, each uh, data feed is aggregating data from multiple Chainlink nodes. And that's basically taking the median value between a multitude of different uh, security reviewed, civil resistant independent node operators, which is run by entities like Deutsche Telekom uh, these telecommunication enterprises and also data providers like Kaiko and even data providers running their own Chainlink node, which is kind of its own topic of its own. But when you're looking at Chainlink Oracle networks, they're decentralized both on the node count, but also on the data source count. So basically when you're looking at what, what is the value that Chainlink is giving you, it's essentially a median of a median of a volume weighted average price tracking all exchanges. So that's kind of a mouthful, but that's how you generate market coverage. That's how you ensure data quality. And that's how you ensure that the values that Chainlink Oracle Networks provide 
uh, DeFi smart contracts like the ETHUSD price actually reflects the ETHUSD price, not just what a single entity thinks it is or wants it to be. It's, it's, it's decentralized consensus on multiple layers. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially each data source represents the whole market. Each individual response takes multiple data sources and each Oracle network takes multiple individual node responses. And so you get these multi, like, multiple layers of aggregation. And I don't think people realize, but this is like enterprise quality data. Like this is data that you could use to, you know, in centralized exchange systems. Like this is like about as high quality as you get because there's been such careful consideration into each part of these price feeds. Yeah. And that's, that's essentially like, that's the value proposition. It's not just the, um, it's not just the reliability of the Chainlink network. It keeps running even during, you know, extreme blockchain network congestion, but the data at all times is it's enterprise grade data, essentially, which is useful for smart contracts, but it's also useful for enterprise backend systems. But sometimes we see narratives where even though Chainlink's already decentralized, people say, well, I want more decentralization. I want, I want to, I want to mix Chainlink's data with some other Oracle solutions data, but that kind of get that gets into a risk where, what you're doing when you're taking Chainlink Oracle networks, which are already decentralized on these three different layers, and then you're adding in a bunch of, uh, you're adding in Oracles from unproven Oracle solutions that are fetching from low quality free open APIs, and then you're mixing that into Chainlink. What you're doing is you're diluting data quality. You're, you're, you're getting less security assurances for the data you provide. So that approach to mixing data that can leave, lead easily to manipulation because only the lowest quality oracles have to be manipulated even when Chainlink oracles are giving the correct value. So that that's an approach that should never be taken. Yeah, and just to add to that. So what people are trying to achieve with that is like, well, what if Chainlink fails? And well, first off, we've already demonstrated that it's decentralized across multiple fronts. But even if you, even if there was something to happen to like a core bug in a, in a Chainlink network, well, we there's actually another client that's running at a low frequency in the background that can basically automatically fail over to this other client should something happen. So you actually have a backup client running in the background in case like a black swan event were to happen. It's never happened. I don't expect it to happen, but it is there. So you actually already have something that mitigates that. You can also integrate circuit breakers. Yeah, you could have the, the chain link price feed be compared to the, you know, the, the current uh, update be compared to the past update. And if there's a really large deviation, which maybe would indicate that something bad, you know, it's the wrong price, then you could actually trigger some type of contract logic, maybe a temporary pause in the application. So this is actually a more secure way to implement these additional security measures if you want to pay for it. Uh, so you can get these guarantees that maybe you want. And there are some cases where users absolutely, they just, they need multiple Oracle solutions. That, that does, that's a must for them. And if they want to do that, Chainlink allows users to do that in a way that's actually safe. So instead of just mixing the data, what you could do with the circuit breaker design is use Chainlink as the primary feeds that uh, continuously provide data to these applications. And then you use a lower quality, maybe it's an on-chain uh, data feed as like a secondary circuit breaker. So the only thing the circuit breaker does is if there's a large deviation between the secondary Oracle and Chainlink feeds, it basically raises a flag and an application can see that flag 
and then they can do something with that. That could be pausing the application, or that could be kind of, uh, it could be really any measure of things, but essentially that's the case in which if users absolutely want to use multiple oracles, they can do so in a way that doesn't compromise data quality and provides them the ability to prefer safety over liveness if they so choose, because again, the circuit breakers are actually an optional feature. However, the multiple clients, every Oracle network is already running with multiple clients. So the, the OCR feeds are the primary and then the flux monitor, which is the previous client version is like running in the background at a very, very low frequency. And if something goes wrong with OCR, the flux monitor gets basically shifted to being the primary and the update frequency increased. So that's a system that's already securing all Chainlink Oracle networks. And that's been running for uh, quite a while now, actually. And it's, it's, it's never needed to be used. OCR has never you know, been corrupted in that way, but should it happen, should a black swan event happen, Chainlink's already protected against these black swan events. So you don't need to, you don't need to dilute data quality in order to prevent something like, like this. Yeah, so I mean, I think we could clearly see that Chainlink price feeds across pretty much any dimension are about as secure you know, as you can get and as reliable and have the best data quality and, you know, and have the best economics because as all these teams collectively fund these Oracle networks, especially across multiple different chains, you have a real economy of scale and, and you really don't need another solution. There's not really any added value to that. Um, so anyway, that, those are Chainlink price fees. Those are the most widely used service today. Those are expanding at quite a rapid rate because DeFi is the main, uh, it's the main market for blockchains at the moment and, and probably will be for a while. But let's transition now to uh, another uh, solution, which is proof of reserve. Let, let's really, let's set a little context for it. So there's a lot of fiat-backed stable coins. There's a lot of cross-chain stable coins and a lot of asset-backed tokens. So what are those? They're really just tokens that are backed by some other asset. So with stable coins, those are, those are you know, US, they're USD coins that are backed by fiat in a bank account. You could have a euro, you could have actually other types of stable coins. They're mostly USD now, but they're backed by actual money in a bank account. You cross-chain tokens, those are tokens on one chain that are backed by the original token on its main blockchain. So if you had Bitcoin on Ethereum, those are backed by Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain. And then uh, an asset backed token is you have a real world asset that backs that token on the blockchain. Say I had a piece of real estate and that is tokenized on the blockchain to represent ownership to that particular piece of real estate. Um, and so the problem is that the collateralization of these, uh, you know, asset-backed coins, fiat, you know, stable coins, is that you can't verify that it has the specific amount of reserves backing that asset. So we have these, you know, asset-backed coins or stable coins, whatever you want to call them, and 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 what we're trying to do is verify their collateralization. And so what's collateralization? It's just the ratio of reserve assets, which are backing them, uh, compared to the, the amount of tokenized assets that are on the blockchain. And this would define your collateralization. And so the problem is that the, a smart contract cannot know the collateralization on chain. It can't verify it um, because the data that, that tells someone whether it's collateralized is off chain. It's on another blockchain. It's on an, ex, in an external backend system. 
And so proof, what proof of reserve does is it uses an Oracle network to verify that collateralization. So it verifies on the other blockchain in a backend system, the amount of reserves that's backing that on-chain tokenized asset. And it, it does this by, by verifying that the reserves and the, or there's some type of ratio that it wants to verify. Maybe that's one to one, maybe that's one to 10. It depends on the product. Most are one are trying to be one to one now. I don't think all of these are, you know, we've learned through Tether, not all these are one to one, but it's trying to verify this ratio. So it's kind of like a, a audit of the collateralization in real time and on chain. It's kind of like a, an automated audit instead of doing a manual review. And you can actually share this across multiple different projects. So it's not just every product project has to do their own uh, request and receive. You could actually have this as a reference contract. And so let's maybe a little, uh, CLG, you can go into a little bit maybe how it works. Yeah, so, so when we're looking at uh, proof of reserve feeds, from a structural perspective, from like how the data is put on chain, it's actually structured pretty much identically to price feeds. But instead of financial market data, it's fetching data from auditors who have access to these backend systems to post the reserves. So when, when you're looking at how does a smart contract determine if an asset is meeting this collateralization, whether that's one to one or one to 10 or whatever. So for many assets, there's actually two uh, reference feeds. There's a proof of reserve and a proof of supply. So the proof of reserve is providing the data on how much assets, whether that's stable coins or that's gold or that's Bitcoin, how much of these assets exist uh, being held by the custodian. And so that, that, that's what the proof reserve is, the reserves. The proof of supply comes into play when this tokenized asset exists on multiple blockchain networks. Like maybe you have a stable coin like Tether that exists on Ethereum, it exists on Polygon, it exists on even Tron, EOS, it exists on all these different chains. So when you're determining the collateralization, you need to know not just the reserve, but you need to know the supply as well on all these chains. So when, when you're checking if the collateralization is met, what you're basically doing is you're fetching the data from the supply feed, then you're, you're fetching from the reserve feed, and then you're comparing them, you're basically dividing them. Do I get you know one? And if I get something that's uh, a deviation, like let's say there's only $50 million backing $100 million of stable coins, then clearly there is a major issue there. And so here, I think we can kind of step into like, how would a proof reserve feed be used? Because on its own, it already has a use case. It's an on-chain audit trail. Anybody off-chain can look at it because it's on the blockchain and verify for themselves if some token is fully collateralized, some token that's backed by off-chain collateral. But the really interesting use cases come into play when a smart contract is using these proof reserve feeds. So if we look at something like a money market where you can lend and borrow these different tokens, these money markets almost always have stable coins because that's what people want to borrow and that's what people want to earn yield on. But most stable coins are centralized stable coins backed by US dollar in a bank account somewhere. So what proof reserves can offer is basically a circuit breaker. So while proof reserve doesn't prevent loss, like it doesn't prevent a stable coin from losing its collateral collateralization. What it does do is it mitigates the damages caused by fractional reserve. Like let's say you had a centralized stable coin where there's supposed there's a billion dollars and there's a billion stable coins. But tomorrow the custodian decides to be malicious and they mint a hundred trillion of these tokens backed by nothing. 
Now, theoretically, they could deposit all that on the money market and then borrow everyone else's collateral and run away with the money while the money market and the lenders are left with these worthless stable coins backed by nothing. What circuit breakers can do is if the proof reserve feed and the proof of supply show a major deviation, it can pause functions. It can pause the deposits of this token. It can, deposit, it can pause uh, deposits, withdrawals, and borrowing against these tokens, which are in a state of inconsistency, basically. They're not backed like they should be. So it basically, it mitigates the ripple effects from under collateralization. So it's like, it's like an additional safety net, basically. And, and money markets is really just one use case. You could really have a myriad, myriad of different products, financial products. You can purchase like a, uh, a swaps product where if you hold $100 million of TUSD and you want to be protected if that TUSD is no longer backed, you can buy an insurance product from another user and that insurance product is settled using the uh, proof reserve feed to basically provide like a permissionless, basically trustless financial product. Yeah, I think a few things to note. The, the proof of reserve is actually for applications, mo mo not always, but it's mostly for applications that are supporting these assets. So like an Aave could use a proof of reserve on their stablecoin lending. Um, the other thing is the, the verification method, it, it can be auditors or if it's just on another blockchain, you know, you can just read that blockchain. So there's different ways to verify those reserves depending on you know, the tokens. And there might be certain trust assumptions, you know, whether you have one auditor or you have multiple auditors, like there will be varying levels to that uh, attestation of those reserves. But I think the, the main thing is also you have a clear, you know, on-chain record of who audited them. You have, a, you know, what their numbers were. So there's a clear trail of exactly what happened. So then you can also then find out where things went wrong, if they did, and these kind of things. It, it, it essentially it provides a significant amount of transparency into this backing because any kind of proof reserve is gonna be better than no proof reserve because in that case, you have no transparency, you have no safety nets. So like, it's kind of like an additive safety net mechanism. Applications may not, like Aave, may not necessarily require a proof reserve, but if they use a proof reserve, then they provide greater security assurances to their users. So it's like, it's protecting the DeFi ecosystem and it's providing a great amount of transparency. So when we look at the different uh, proof reserve feeds that have, that do exist, we have things like wrapped Bitcoin, WBTC, which is the largest form of tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum. With a proof reserve feed, you can verify that BitGo, the custodian, is actually holding enough Bitcoin and smart contracts can actually verify that when they interact with the wrapped Bitcoin tokens. And if wrapped Bitcoin is no longer properly backed, it can, you know, it can pause, it can provide these safety functions. And we see kind of the same thing with REN and REN BTC, where instead of a centralized custodian like BitGo, you have more of a uh, decentralized network of these dark nodes who hold like a multi-sig, which controls the Bitcoin. But, you know, the Bitcoin information is still on the Bitcoin blockchain. You need to, you know, the proof reserve is basically bridging that custody data over to Ethereum. So that, that's like the cross-chain token aspect of it. Yeah, I was gonna add that, I think it's gonna become increasingly important as you see more, if you see assets move across multiple different chains that are you know, collateralized by some asset. For example, it's collateralized stable coins. Like there's gonna be a lot more assets that are, or you know, 
maybe LP tokens or some of these different things where they're on different chains and, but the, the, the reserves are backing those, the collateral backing those are on a different chain. And it's gonna be a lot of need to pass data between these to make sure, you know, these products are what they said they are. These assets actually have the value that they claim to have. And so as we move multi-chain, this is probably gonna become increasingly important. Yeah, it, it, it's definitely like a, it's an additional protection mechanism for token bridges, essentially. So a token bridge, if it were to just, if the validators of that bridge were to be malicious and mint a bunch of tokens that, you know, if, if you're trying to bridge link from Ethereum onto BSC, you can use a proof reserve feed in order to actually verify, are these link tokens on BSC actually backed by link tokens on Ethereum? Like I think they are. And that person thinking that can be a smart contract, importantly. So it's like this is automation of auditing, which is like the key point. So that that's kind of like, that's the cross-chain token aspect of proof reserve, which will become increasingly important as things enter more of like a multi-chain world as we see. But we also see other proof reserve feeds specifically for USD-backed stablecoins. So one of the, some of the more prominent ones is like TUSD, which is a, a stablecoin from Trust Token. And we also see PAX, which is from Paxos, which is the custodian uh, for PayPal. Their stablecoin, basically, their, the collateralization of their stablecoins is available on Ethereum for any smart contracts using stablecoins. And as the DeFi ecosystem grows, as the demand for yield grows, and as you know, we've already seen the growth of stablecoins, the amount minted go exponential. These proof reserve feeds basically provide uh, additional assurances as we see the, the stablecoin ecosystem continue to expand as it, as it does. One thing that I think could be interesting, just kind of more of a thought that I had is, you know, you have, say you have these, you know, off-chain systems that are, that are auditing these, uh, you know, on-chain, they're these off-chain reserves. You, you could even create kind of, you know, insurance products that if those auditors are wrong, then that triggers an automatic, you know, insurable payout or, or, you know, like we talked about earlier. So it, you could actually create products off of the auditors that so people can get some assurances. And if those, if that auditor is lying, if they're, you know, whatever, doing not doing what they're supposed to do after the fact. Yeah, basically, if you don't if you don't trust an auditor, you can short them basically, which is a yeah, yeah. It, it, or, it or go gives, long and you know if you trust them, you can do that as well. But it gives you these uh you know unique ways to you know, mitigate risk. And it actually holds the auditors then more accountable. And so, I mean, this is where the whole, a lot of these systems are moving is how do I get these kind of guarantees, um, you know, in various ways. Yeah, so when you're looking at the different types of financial products that you can actually build around proof reserves, I, I, I do agree. I think most of it's going to be insurance related, but I think it'll be in the aspect of like providing uh, insurance in the sense that if the stable coin is no longer backed, you get guarantees that you'll get paid out, even if that stablecoin is like being lent out on a money market like Aave. So if we look at uh, one of the recent chain like Hackathon winners, was, which was a parametric digital asset risk management solution, that basically provided a two-sided marketplace for insurers and insurees to provide a market for lenders of TUSD on the Aave market who are wanting to earn yield. So basically, if something goes wrong on the Aave money market with TUSD or the TUSD token is no longer fully backed according to the proof reserve and proof of supply feeds, then it could basically withdraw for you and then cover any losses, which is paid out by the insurance provider. So 
like the, these proof reserve feeds basically provide a way to decentralize insurance of cross-chain tokens of stable coins and even asset-backed tokens, which kind of what we see for asset-backed tokens is with uh, PAX-G, which is essentially a gold-backed uh, stable coin. And when people say stable coin, they usually refer to fiat because they think fiat's stable, even though it's dropped like 90% over the past uh, century. But stable coin is the sense that it's pegged to something and PAX-G is pegged to gold, backed by gold in a vault. So the proof reserve fee for PAX-G is basically proving does gold exist in Paxos's vault? And so as more commodities get tokenized and even like stocks get tokenized, but the existing stock exchanges still exist, there'll need to be a proof reserve that each um, tokenization version of a existing financial product is indeed backed by a, a the original version in the traditional financial system. So proof reserves, it's something for which I think will be important when DeFi is running at scale. And I'm talking like global scale, like trillions of dollars in economic activity. That's when you need proof reserves to prevent systemic risks, essentially. Yeah, I mean, if we if we just look at today's markets, we have you know such under collateralization, and it's really hard to know if you know, there's so much credit that's issued. It's hard to know like what is the base value of all this stuff, and and so a proof of reserve can provide us that you know transparency into what is the actual systemic risk, what is the amount of credit compared to the base level assets, and this is really important to avoid these massive boom and bust because credit gets so out of hand and no one knows how that relates to the base level assets. And so the proof of reserve is, is going to, yeah, like you said, become more and more important as we scale. Yeah. I mean, just imagine if we had proof reserve for tether, like that would like they published their auditing reports after years, but that information is still off chain. So even when these stable coins publish their backing of their asset, all that information, those manual audits, they're off chain. They, they still can't be used by on-chain smart contracts. So ultimately I think that any in all type of audits, even like smart contract audits of like solidity code, that'll be bridged. That's not necessarily a proof reserve, but it's a proof of audit, which is basically what proof reserve is. And just having the audits on chain, even if it doesn't lead directly to an action, creates kind of like evidence of like what happened. So you, you can, when you go back and look to see what happened, what went wrong, who was at fault, like it provides the, the evidence needed to make, to, to properly calculate what happened and, yeah. you know, assign, assign blame and, and this and that. And, and that's important to having a trustworthy society so you know who, who did what. Yeah, that, that, that's, it kind of comes down to like the core value proposition of blockchains. It's immutable database of entries that are cryptographically signed by the original party. So when you have proof reserves and you're putting all these cryptographically signed data points, you're creating an immutable on-chain audit trail. And so we've kind of, we really hammered this point down on the transparency aspect, but like it, when you think about it, this is not how the world works today. It is not transparent. We don't have proof reserves for, you know, your bank account. Even you have no evidence that the dollars that your mobile app says you have in, you know, Chase Bank or Wells Fargo, you don't actually have evidence of that. But with DeFi, we have an opportunity to basically flip the triangle from being top down to being bottom up in this aspect. So everybody can have basically complete control of their own finances. So with, with Proof Reserve, it's basically providing transparency specifically about these stable coins 
cross-chain tokens and asset-backed tokens. But ultimately what Chainlink is, is it provides the ability for smart contracts to connect to any external data source. And usually those external data sources are called APIs or application programming interfaces. So this, this next Chainlink service is basically best described as any API. You can use Chainlink to connect your smart contract to any application programming interface. And to provide some context, an API is basically a way services and servers uh, programmatically communicate with each other. So this is an example Sergey always brings up, but when you look at Uber and how Uber exists, they didn't create their own SMS system and their own GPS system and their own payment system. What they did is that they connected their core Uber code using an API to a service that provides you know, GPS, that provides SMS and that provides payment. So they don't have to go and create their own infrastructure for this. Yeah, and just to simplify it, the, the API is just telling your system how to interact with that system you know how what how i can get data from your system so it's just kind of an interface to outlining how you can interact with that other system to get data and so the the api provider is designing it in a way where the people can get specific data sets without you know being able to get other data sets in their system so they're designing that in a specific way yeah it's basically it's like a it's the standard standardized way for how computers talk to each other basically is through these interfaces, which have like rigid, here's what you can say to me, and this is what I'll tell you back in but like binary computer code. So when you're looking at the interaction of Chainlink and APIs, Chainlink Oracle node, like the, the, the software node operators run out of the box, it, uh, Chainlink Oracles can connect to any open API. So any API that doesn't require a password. So there's already a lot of data that exists like this, a lot of uh, so some price data providers and like weather data and some of these other like uh, data sources for which it's like a commodity at this point. So out of the box, Chainlink nodes can go fetch that data and go deliver it to you. But a lot of the data that's actually worth triggering smart contracts with, they're authenticated APIs. Meaning if you wanna to connect to a web service, you need a password. And essentially that's how uh, web companies, API providers, that's how they monetize their data is that you need to pay for an API subscription. Then when you pay for the subscription, you get a password and that password allows you to access their data. So that, that's like, that's the way the API economy works. That's how it's monetized is authenticated APIs. But when, when you look at Chainlink nodes, they not only can connect to any open API, they can also connect theoretically to basically anything in the world. And that's basically achieved through what's called external adapters. So these are like additional modules you plug into a Chainlink node that handles the communication with the API. So it would store the API key. It would basically provide the, uh, the filtering and the computation and the analysis. It would basically act as the middleware for the Chainlink node to connect to an API. And each node operator would run their own external adapters. So you could have like an external adapter for data source A you can have an external adapter for data source B and they, you can have multiple uh, external adapters like combined together like a pipeline. So it'll fetch data from one source then set it to the next external adapter and like keep doing that until delivery is ready. Yeah, I, I kind of look at external adapters. They're like a wrapper for the API in a way. And the interesting part is once someone creates an external adapter for a specific resource, you know, as long as they open sources, which most do, then anyone can then, any node can then grab that external adapter and then use it to connect to that API. 
So what you'll probably see more and more is this kind of data marketplace where, okay, I can get, I can just easily leverage these external adapters or no, I, I can say to nodes, hey, can I, you know, get this and that, and they can just lever all these external adapters to get all the inputs and outputs for the contract. Yeah, external adapters, it's it, it's something that Chainlink has had since literally day one, but it's why Chainlink is future-proof because these external adapters, it's just, it's just a simple like interface, but what's actually passed through that interface can be literally anything. So any possible data source, any possible computation that users will ever want, an external adapter can be created importantly by literally anyone in any programming language and then deployed by anyone. Usually the node operator runs their own server or their own external adapter because that's the most decentralized way to do it. But realistically, anyone can run the external adapter. So you can have API providers actually running their own external adapter, providing access to their APIs if that was a model they so choose. So the most common use case of any API versus like price feeds versus proof reserves, where that data is like a it's already on chain and collectively funded and shared by many users. What any API is really key for is like more niche data sets or data sets that are required at a specific moment in time and need to be highly precise at that moment in time. So when we're looking at something like uh, the, the result of a sports event or the weather conditions in a certain country, you know, if the temperature drops below 60 degrees, then go create a transaction. Essentially, any API is the request and receive model. You, as a contract, generate a request to a Chainlink node, they go use their external adapters to go fetch something, and then they return it back to the contract within a separate transaction later in time. So there's a lot of different use cases we see in this regard. Yeah, like I said, weather data, sports data, but also this is how smart or how Chainlink Oracles then start connecting to external or to enterprise systems. And maybe not, and, and most nodes, you know, the node's gonna have to have access, but this is what's good is that the, you know, a set of nodes that are permissioned to access some enterprise system, they can write, they can have external adapters to connect to that particular system. And maybe those aren't open source, you know, that, that depends on what the enterprise wants, but this is also how you could send outputs. So the, so a smart contract triggers, it wants to trigger a payment on say PayPal, an external system. It can create an external adapter on how to send a payment message to PayPal to trigger a payment and then probably receive a result back and confirm that that payment happened on chain. And so th this is how, and also cyber physical systems, uh, you know, you can take data, you can allow the contract to say, open a, a door that has a certain biometric fingerprint or, or there's a lot of things you could do, but the contract can, can basically interact in the actual physical world, opening garages. I think we saw this with one of the, I can't remember the exact name, but there was a data provider that, you know, was allowing, using Chainlink Oracles to to close, uh, automate, I think it was like closing garages or closing windows or boarding up windows when there's like a hurricane based on certain weather data. And so there's a lot of, we really haven't, we barely scratched the surface and these kind of things. Um, you know, the smart contracts need to evolve more and more, but these are the kind of things that become possible. I mean, like when, when you think about it, the possibilities are basically limitless in this aspect, because while when you look at other oracles that don't have external adapters, they're limited to free open APIs, or you have to reveal, reveal the API key to everyone by posting it on-chain, which is not going to happen because that goes against the terms of service of the data provider. So ultimately kind of what 
any API and external adapters provide is the ability for users to uh, ingest any type of data that they require for their contract, even if it has, even if it's something that hasn't like been built by the Chainlink Labs development team, they can go write their own external adapter, plug it to their own Chainlink node, or give it to existing node operators so that they can plug it into their Chainlink node. And you can basically bootstrap an Oracle network for uh, anything, basically. And so like it's it's one of those those aspects where this is how Chainlink's able to bring all the world's data on chain is because Chainlink, as long as there exists a data source in some way, then it can be brought on chain and then used within the execution of a smart contract. So as more and more of these external adapters get created and we see these marketplaces like market.link where developers can share their external adapters, it's basically, it's like a, it's like a free market economy where anybody can go and build the best external adapters and share their source code, you know, and due to the nature of open source, that makes it these external adapters extremely secure and allows for a significant degree of collaboration. And even going beyond that, you see external adapters for computations eventually, where you're not just external adapters for getting specific data sets, but ones for computations. Yeah, and on, on, that, on that aspect of computation, I think that's kind of a lot of what we've talked about is in the aspect of data delivery. So a Chainlink node would go fetch from a data provider and they would go deliver it back on chain. But Chainlink nodes can do computations natively. And so one of these computations we already see being done and already done at scale is verifiable randomness. So with Chainlink VRF, Chainlink verifiable randomness function, that basically provides smart contracts the ability to access randomness. So when we're looking at randomness, true randomness is almost impossible to get and it's basically entirely impossible to verify. So ultimately what most applications both on the blockchain and off the blockchain, they're actually using pseudo randomness, a mechanism through which it's programmatically generated but which is unpredictable to humans. And what you really want is a way to verify it, verify that the randomness is random. So when we're looking at, uh, when we're looking at blockchain networks, it doesn't generate randomness, or at least it doesn't generate a secure form of randomness. So what we kind of see sometimes, uh, far too often, unfortunately, is a naive approach where an application uses the hash, the cryptographic hash of a new block that's generated as randomness, because theoretically, it's unpredictable until the block is created. However, the miner who generates a block, it basically introduces an attack vector where if a miner generates a block with a hash that's not favorable to them, they can just discard the block and try again, basically allowing them to reroll the dice. And in some implementations, it allows them to reroll the dice an infinite amount of times until they get a hash that is preferable to them, and then they post that block on chain. So it's it's basically entirely manipulating randomness process. It's kind of like a minor extractable value where they they leverage their ability to order blocks, and if that hash is not favorable, they just don't include it in that block and they, you know, like you said, re-roll. Yeah, it's it basically miners would have free reign to manipulate randomness. And we've actually already seen this happen in the real world. There's been there's been too many projects in my opinion. We've seen things like MeBits and things like Hashmax where they used the they used the block hash because it was under the assumption that it would be random, but then discovered that it could be manipulated by users in a variety of ways because it's not it's not unpredictable to everyone and it can be tampered with. So as like 
kind of a quote unquote solution, what we see from other Oracle providers is that an Oracle node, their form of randomness, they would go fetch data from like random.org and then they would return that randomness on chain, theoretically. But when you're looking at randomness, manipulated randomness looks identical to actual randomness. You can't tell the difference because it's supposed to look random. You know, with price feeds, if a node delivers the price of Bitcoin as $1, well, clearly that was wrong and clearly the reputation is going to be harmed there. But if a node delivers randomness that appears random, but actually was predetermined to be something that would help themselves, you would have no way to actually prove that or not. You, you have no way of actually verifying it. And so that's, that's kind of the core problem with existing randomness solutions. So what, what developers and smart contracts need is basically a randomness solution for which can't be manipulated, that can actually provide verifiable proof. And I think this is something that you could, you could step into. Yeah, the core, the core value prop of Chaining VRF is it provides, a so it generates a source of randomness, delivers on chain in a manner that, that can actually prove that it hasn't been tampered with. So you know that the VRF generation happened exactly as it's supposed to, and that it can't be uh, tampered with. So that's really, so you, you, you have, it's provably fair, you know, it's provably tamper proof. And, and that's important because that randomness is going to trigger certain functions on chain. And some of those functions are ones that are, you know, responsible for a lot of value, such as who gets a really rare NFT or who wins a lottery. And so there's a lot of value at stake. Also, the users, well, what if someone wins twice in a row or something, you know, by chance? Well, the users might think that that's manipulated. Like there's no way for them to know to prove that it's that it wasn't manipulated. But now that you know with VRF, they actually have proof. So they can, they're not they're not there speculating on whether or not that lottery was fair or what wasn't fair. Well, basically, that, that that's like the key point is that it's verifiable. But how is it verifiable? So basically, what what VRF does every time a new piece of randomness is generated from an Oracle node, it generates randomness and a cryptographic proof proving that it was actually randomness. So. Oh, that, that basically comes down to the verifiable randomness function, which is kind of a math function that's existed for a while, but now is being used for blockchain applications. Basically, you take a seed value like block data and any other value provided by a user, then that's mixed with a Oracle node's private key, like their password, which they don't reveal to anyone. They put that through a VRF function and that generates RNG and a cryptographic proof. And in this sense, a cryptographic proof is basically proving that these inputs gave these outputs and the inputs are the seed values. Everybody can see those and the output everybody can see. And with the cryptographic signature, the private key that the Oracle node used, the, the private key is hidden, but the public key is available. And so when you combine the original seed value, the cryptographic proof, the randomness and the public key, you can completely verify that yes, this seed value led to this piece of randomness and was signed by the correct private key. And so that's, that's essentially how it's verifiable. Yeah. And the point too, is that the, the smart contract that is utilizing Chainlink VRF, it will only accept the random number if there's a valid cryptographic proof and the, the cryptographic proof can only be generated if it was, if it had the correct seed value and the node, the node's private key. So if it was done, in the manner it's supposed to be done, that's the only way it will actually have a valid cryptographic proof. So there's actually no way to manipulate that. 
And then you get these automated assurances by the contract that it will only accept it if it has this cryptographic proof attached. So you, you kind of get these, I, I refer to them as automated assurances that it's fair. Yeah, you can kind of think of it almost like ZK rollups, which is a layer two scaling solution. It proves the validity of blocks using cryptographic proofs preemptively. So no manipulated transactions can ever be generated. And in this sense with VRF, it's the same thing. Uh, a, a, a smart contract using Chainlink VRF will never consume a manipulated piece of randomness because it would have already been preemptively rejected because the cryptographic proof was false. And as well, because everything's on chain, if, it, if an Oracle node decided they wanted to try to manipulate it, well, now you just have on-chain proof, not only that the Oracle node tried to manipulate it, but it wouldn't work because it would never be accepted by the smart contract. So it's it's kind of like two layers of security, security backed by cryptographic assurances. And kind of the important aspect of security here is that neither the Chainlink node, the end users, the developers, or the Chainlink team can manipulate the RNG at all because they can't manipulate the cryptographic proof. So that, that essentially provides the most secure form of randomness where if you have a rare NFT that's minted, you can point to the cryptographic proof that's stored on chain and show definitively that this uh, NFT is actually based upon verifiable randomness. Yeah, and looking at some of these use cases, like I said before, the more value the randomness secures, the more important something like VRF is. And randomness is used in a lot more things than people realize. Uh, for example, like we said before, a very rare NFTs, uh, selection of traits. So you can also distribute the NFT or you can actually select the traits. So this is like things like loot boxes and things like that. In-game dynamics, matchmaking, map generation. Like what if you had tournaments that are worth a lot of money and they're matchmaking different players? This is where you would want a fair source of randomness. It makes the game, people want to play games that are fair. And then you also can add that level of unpredictability, which makes it exciting. A lot of like generative artwork, you could have randomness that changes the artwork in unique ways using this randomness. I think, you know, I was, I've talked about on Twitter before, it'd be kind of cool to have an art piece that randomly changes in different ways. Uh, and, you, you know, you could see it on your wall. Uh, ordering. What if you had a lot of participants in an ICO? It's a very high demand ICO. How do you determine who gets to participate if there's limited slots? Well, you could use the randomness function. If it's a, you know, the more in demand something is, you know, the more important that randomness becomes. Like what about uh, if uh, ticketing for events, you know, sold out events, or uh, what if you had auctions for a really pair uh, or a really in demand pair of shoes that a lot of people want? How do you determine who gets that? This, so, so VRF actually can be used in a lot of off-chain applications uh, because it, it, you know, it's so secure. Like, for example, with lotteries, uh, what, if you had, what if you had state lotteries determined by VRF? You actually could know that the lottery is fair and it's not being used in you know, malicious ways or it's being tampered with. Yeah, with, with VRF, essentially, like the, the largest use cases we see today are these dynamic NFTs and these on-chain gaming applications. But when you have a verifiable source of randomness, that can be used both by smart contracts, any smart contract that needs randomness for anything, but it can also be used by off-chain systems, like you said. So if you have a mechanism where you're trying to choose a random sample of a population to do like an academic study, you can use Chainlink VRF to basically prove to other researchers in the community 
that you actually chose people randomly from a large pool of people. And so because all the information is on chain, anyone at any point in time today and tomorrow can verify that this randomness was legitimately random, random and not manipulated. So chain like BRF ultimately has use cases both on chain and off chain, which is an incredibly powerful dynamic. And you can also use the things for like security. Um, you know, randomness is a critical function to security, just so people can't reverse engineer it. You could use it for things like selecting jurors or you know these other things that people don't want to do. And so, okay, well, we're just going to do it randomly. So there's a lot of different ways that uh, this is important because I think there's a lot of random things. We're like, is that really random? Is that like I don't know if I don't really trust it. So it like brings trust back into these things. Yeah, with with randomness, it's it's always tricky because you know if the same person gets picked ten times, you know that's not going to look very random, but it could be. You know, like probabilistically wise, it's possible. So ultimately, it provides not just like a not just assurances, but it provides like a peace of mind for users because they can actually know that some system was random, even if it doesn't appear random, because that's just the nature of randomness. And also. It's important to know that you can have weighted randomness. So you can incorporate odds like 60, 40 or whatever your odds are and randomly select within those odds. So it's not just like pure randomness where there's no odds. It's You can have odds in there. So you can also use this for a lot of gaming applications, obviously gambling applications, things like that. All right, so yeah, we, we've discussed price feeds, we've discussed proof of reserve, we've discussed any API, we've discussed VRF. Let's look at uh, keepers briefly. I think this is one we'll, we will dive more in depth maybe in another episode because this has not been launched yet. And so we don't have all the details on exactly how it all works, but I think it would be good to give a framing of what keepers are and what kind of value Chainlink keepers will bring to the ecosystem. When you're thinking about keepers, it's pretty simple, really. Smart contracts are asleep is an easy way to think about it. They're, they're not autonomous. They need to be woken up in order to execute. So it, like you could say, I need to poke them, I need to wake them up. And so and that just ha- it takes the form of an on-chain transaction. So say you need to liquidate a loan. Well, the smart contract needs to be poked and say, okay, go liquidate that loan. And then so, or like, uh, rebasing a token it needs to the contract needs to be poked to say okay go go rebase the token supply it will go check the oracle value and rebase it um a few use cases we've already said liquidations for money markets rebases for algorithmic stable coins settling options and futures contracts harvesting yield uh, you could have limit orders on dexes i think i think an important distinction here is that most of what we described here are like traditional Oracle services. They're delivering something, they're delivering the data, but here uh, keepers aren't delivering data. What they're doing is they're just, they're like a transaction automation service so that they're uh, pinging a contract and calling a predefined function. And that function may go use data from Oracle's like chain link price feeds, but keepers in of themselves aren't delivering anything. They're the act of generating the transaction is the service essentially. So kind of just wanted to wanted to emphasize there that oracles and keepers both can be done by chain like Oracle networks, but fundamentally um, that they're, they're complementary. They could be used together, but they're achieving different goals. Yeah, the, the Oracle is simply bringing the data on chain. Whereas the, the keeper is telling 
the contract to act. And that contract may act by then reading the Oracle data if it's required, like with liquidations and re most rebasing tokens, but it doesn't actually, it's not always required. Like if you're harvesting yield, it's just telling the contract to harvest that yield out of the contract. And so it, they're very, they're perfectly complementary. Kind of another key point is that keepers, unlike Oracle's, which could deliver bad data, keepers, either they do the task or they don't do the task. They can't like halfway do the task or do the task slightly wrong because all a keeper is doing is calling a smart contract function that's already written, that's already been created. The contract determines, you know, when it wakes up, the contract determines what it does. All the keeper does is determine the point in time in which the contract is awoken. So you can't have a malicious keeper. You can have an unreliable keeper, but a keeper can't like it can't mess with your contract because it's not it's not delivering anything. It can't be wrong. Yeah, and keepers really function on two distinctions. You can, they could do time base. So a rebasing one is an easy example. Every day at a certain time, we want to trigger the rebasing function, or they could be monitoring off-chain events and, and, and triggering based on events like a price a certain price change, or they they're monitoring loans to see if they're you know, under collateralized. And then when they, when, they, when they think they're under collateralized, they ping the smart contract. But it's important to note that the smart contract will then check the Oracle price itself uh, to, to see if it's liquidated or not. So the, the keeper is just telling it when to act. Now, if it's wrong, it just wasted a transaction because the contract isn't going to liquidate them if it's not under collateralized. So it's basically monitoring the outside world Maybe even doing some types of computations uh, to check if certain you know conditions are met, so it so then it can ping the contract when uh, when necessary. And there's a lot of things you can do with these. Like like we said before, you could put limit orders on dexes. There's a lot of things you can do, um, but that's the basic gist of, of keepers. And kind of kind of this with this dynamic where a keeper can't be wrong; it just needs to be reliable. In this sense. What we kind of see developers doing because of this uh, assumption of it can't be evil, that they'll just go spin up a keeper node in their basement and then have that single computer go do liquidations or go do rebases. But that, you know, that that's a centralized point of failure in the sense that it can't deliver bad data, but it can fail to act when it needs to. And not acting can actually be absolutely fucking terrible for a protocol, like if, if we're being serious. When we're looking at a money market like Aave and it's during like a major market crash and there's huge network congestion, that keeper needs to act to go liquidate positions or the protocol will become under collateralized, aka insolvent and lose user funds. So like keepers in the sense they can't be evil, but being unreliable is a form of being evil in this sense. And so when you have a single centralized computer acting as a keeper, you know that you're not providing your users your, your contract isn't decentralized end-to-end. -end. It's mostly decentralized, but then the actual triggering of key functions is centralized, making it ultimately unreliable end-to-end. -end. So kind of the key distinction and kind of what we'll see with Chainlink Keepers and kind of what was from the little documentation that exists is that the key aspect is that it's decentralizing these keeper networks. So instead of one keeper responsible for monitoring when something should happen, you have a decentralized network of nodes monitoring when a transaction should occur. And so that, that, that provides decentralized guarantees that some action will happen 
even you know during extreme blockchain network congestion where it costs a thousand dollars to make a transaction if they're economically incentivized keepers and there's like a hundred of them then ultimately at least one's going to call the function and then the correct thing will happen so it's it, it's about decentralization and with keepers really yeah it's, it's fully automating applications because the keeper if the contract doesn't know to act it's not automated so and by centralizing that, you create this full spectrum automation uh, and you create more reliability is really the key point um, that these contracts will act when they're supposed to act. And like you said, they have there's real consequences if they don't act at specific times. So, you know, when you look at the Chainlink network today and you look at price feeds and you look at these uh, these multitude of highly reliable node operators who have consistently posted Oracle updates for years and there's this long on-chain performance history where you can verify this activity, if and when those uh, existing Chainlink nodes become keepers, they would provide the same reliability guarantees because of they would basically be providing Oracle services and keeper services at the same time. And because they have revenue and the reputation on the line, they're very incentivized to continue being reliable. And that's ultimately kind of why I imagine that Chainlink keepers will probably be the most reliable keeper solution because you know we already have so many reliable nodes in the Chainlink network like Deutsche Telekom and Keiko that ultimately Chainlink keepers, kind of what I foresee is that any keeper function would basically be done by Chainlink keepers. So that that's kind of, that's more speculation on my part, but I think that's ultimately the most likely when we look at how Chainlink is used today. So kind of beyond this aspect of off-chain computation with uh, keepers and uh, VRF, which is really just a small portion of off-chain computation. This kind of, this last one, last uh, service that we'll kind of touch upon is essentially a blockchain abstraction layer for enterprises. So I think you can kind of start this one out. Yeah, sure. So we have, you know, Chainlink is natively blockchain agnostic. I think most people realize, well, most of our community at least realizes this, but more and more people are, are seeing this. Also, if you look at the Chainlink Grant program, they're kind of accelerating that, bringing Chainlink natively into more and more uh, environments. And because it's not only blockchain agnostic, but it's API agnostic. So it allows any external system to, to interact with any blockchain. And, and because it's blockchain agnostic, you can get a lot of, you can get a couple key features. You can read data from any blockchain. You can write data to any blockchain and you can run this on any blockchain or interact with it from any off-chain system. And this creates what you know, is referred to as like a blockchain abstraction layer. It's kind of a, a, a way where you can interact with all these different environments in whatever ways you want from any starting point. And so this, this brings you know, several benefits to you know, potential users. Yeah, so when you're, when you're looking at like a an enterprise who wants to become blockchain enabled, they want to start using smart contracts, you know, that they're going to be pitched a lot of different blockchains. My blockchain will do everything in the future. My blockchain will do just this and that. But the reality is that, you know, even if it's a power law distribution, we're going to be seeing a lot of different blockchains and blockchain developers are not common, like core devs who can actually integrate infrastructure into blockchains. So meaning in order for a company to become blockchain enabled for even just one blockchain requires a lot of development resources that requires a, a lot of time, money and energy and effort. But 
you know, when you consider the fact that enterprises are going to need to integrate many blockchains, then it becomes almost impractical to even use blockchain in the first place. And they also don't know which blockchain is going to win. And so they can invest a lot of resources into this integration and then that could be wasted. Um, and, and, and just another point on the, the enterprise is like, they're dealing with a global you know, system, a, a global network of counterparties and the blockchain that you, know, you like or you know, could differ from what your counterparty likes or maybe even within your own company, like one division wants to use this blockchain, another one wants to use this. So you're, you're gonna have to be able to deal with a lot of different blockchains. You might even have blockchains that are specialized for certain geographies. Maybe China has certain blockchains that they use. Maybe you know Europe has certain ones, Middle East. Like there, there's going to be different blockchains probably that are preferred across geographies as well. Yeah, so kind of from this aspect of this multi-chain world is going to be inevitable. What does Chainlink provide in this aspect? But what Chainlink basically provides is a single integration gateway for any enterprise of any size. It could be a mom and pop shop, it could be Amazon or Walmart to basically connect their backend system to uh, any blockchain by just connecting to Chainlink. So that's just one set of documentation. That's just one middleware integration. And with one integration, they get access to any and all blockchain networks that exist both today and into the future as more blockchains get integrated with Chainlink. So ultimately that the, the key value proposition is that it reduces like the development workload and it reduces the amount of time needed for integration so that enterprises can actually push their blockchain strategy on a realistic timeline. And, and uh, in, in that case is that, you know, once you integrate with Chainlink, once you integrate your backend system to Chainlink middleware, whether that's existing Chainlink nodes or running their own Chainlink node, it's basically a future-proof solution because Chainlink can connect to any API, any existing backend system. And kind of key here is that when an enterprise connects to a Chainlink node in order to access blockchains, they don't have to change a thing about their backend system. You know, if it's running on a Cobalt server that's covered in dust from 1964, doesn't matter, that can still be connected to a Chainlink node, which can then be connected to any blockchain network. So that's basically completely eliminates the cost of switching blockchain networks. Maybe one blockchain's hot today, but then all the users go, all your counterparties go hop on another blockchain tomorrow. Okay, maybe that's a bit of a headache for a day, but that doesn't really matter because you know you could just flip a switch and now your backend system's connected to a different blockchain using the same exact middleware solution. So it's like this, it's a universal solution of abstracting away blockchain complexity, essentially. Yeah, the, the enterprise, you know, one part, one part of their process. Okay, I need to go read. I need to go understand what happened on that blockchain. I need to look at a transaction. Okay, I can read that transaction, and then maybe that that transaction causes me to execute some other transaction on another blockchain, or 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 to execute a payment on some other system. So you can see it can just read data from these different systems and then also issue outputs on these different systems or on their own systems. So it's a way, so they could actually, you know, keep track internally as well. And so this just makes it really easy for, you know, we keep using enterprises. It's not just for enterprises, but it's probably most useful for enterprises. Uh, but also I think for dApps as well, like especially as we move cross chain, they can interact with it. It's kind of like, um, proof of reserve in some ways is, is a little bit like this, but um, you know, they can verify these things happening, you know, in whatever system that, you know, whatever blockchain or uh, they want to use. Yeah. I think 
ultimately it benefits any company, any developer, any, any entity thing that wants to connect to a blockchain network. Now they can connect to all blockchain networks with just Chainlink. So I think it becomes clear if you look at like a definitive example, if you're, um, if you're like a distributor in America and you're using the Quorum blockchain, which is like a permissioned version of Ethereum, and your manufacturer you're buying goods from is in China and they're using the BSN network, you know, there's an incompatibility there. And let's say your manufacturer absolutely demands that BSN been, has to be used, but you're only integrated with Quorum. You know, in order to even engage with your counterparty, you need to go integrate a whole new blockchain. And then you go meet another counterparty in Europe and they're using Hyperledger Fabric. And now you have to go integrate a whole nother blockchain. And every time you meet a new counterparty, they want their own blockchain network. It becomes completely unrealistic to even use blockchains in global commerce. But when you have this chain link middleware and you meet a counterparty who's using some, you know, literal who blockchain, cool, doesn't really matter. They'll just connect to it using their chain link node. And that ultimately allows them to engage with any counterparty and gain the benefits, importantly, from smart contract applications and all the benefits that those bring. Uh, and the last point I just wanted to hit on is that we kind of alluded to this already, but it, it makes it easier for a blockchain to allow other systems to interact with their blockchain because they only need to create a set of documentation for how Chainlink talks to their systems, to, to their blockchain. And any external system then can use that documentation to then connect to that blockchain instead of like, okay, this system wants to integrate and you have to do a separate integration for each one is a lot of time and resources. And, and, and so having this standard uh, middleware in between everything makes it really easy for everyone. Yeah, this is basically like, it's a standardized approach to interfacing with blockchain networks. I think if, we're, if, we're, if we take a look at things from like a macro view, I think if you look at the way enterprises move, they they kind of follow what others do first. They want to see someone else take on the risks and go do it. And then they'll go do it if it's successful. If you look at the definitive advantages that smart contracts provide in terms of lower cost, uh, reducing the need for trust and providing extreme amount of transparency, the benefits are clear. Enterprises are just really slow. But once we see the first enterprise make the jump and the first domino falls, it creates a domino effect where once one enterprise adopts a blockchain strategy using Chainlink and they connect to any blockchain. Ultimately, the dominoes keep falling and every enterprise has to follow the same strategy or they get left in the dust and they turn out like Blockbuster. So at that point, it's either evolve or you die as a company, essentially. And so that that's kind of, it, it's like exponential growth. You see the first one fall and then you're going to see all of them taking the same approach because of the definitive benefits that it brings. And so ultimately, these integrations of Chainlink is good for every single blockchain in existence because it provides, once you're connected to Chainlink, you know, it's just one small step away from blockchain X, Y, and Z. Just adding on that, I think what you're, what you're referring to is like the enterprise, if a bunch of enterprises move to some blockchain or they move to some other way of doing it, the enterprise can quickly shift to that through, a, through, through this kind of abstraction layer. And so it makes enterprises very nimble in that sense of, of going where the market goes or needing to offer a new service on a particular blockchain because their customers demand it. Okay, now we can go do that very quickly. So it, a lot of it is just making the, giving them the infrastructure they need to be very nimble. And then the same with dApps or for anyone in that sense. Yeah, if, if we look like beyond enterprise, like you said, 
and we look at the DAP developers, current multi-chain strategies is deploying your application redundantly. So if we see something like a decentralized exchange, we'll see the same decks deployed on multiple, multiple chains all at the same time. But ultimately when you're using Chainlink as this abstraction layer, you can create a unified application where it's using Chainlink as like the substrate to connect all these different blockchains. So ultimately you could have like Ethereum as a final mint uh, custody of assets. You could use Solana for more high-speed computations. You can use uh, Polygon or these other layer two networks to get you know, all, any infinite amount of different combinations of blockchains can be combined. You know, whether that's scalability, privacy, um, any other combination, Chainlink's like the substrate through which connects them all in which users and developers only need to interact with a single interface. So it's it's like, it's, it's just completely minimizing all of the different, um, all of the different complexities of integrating your system with blockchains. Yeah, so we've, We've covered a lot of different uh, different services that Chainlink provides today from data delivery in the terms of data feeds and proof reserve, more off-chain computation with keepers and VRF and these more, uh, more long-term visions like blockchain abstraction layer. But ultimately, you know, even this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more value, a lot more services that Chainlink can provide in terms of like privacy with zero knowledge proofs or off-chain computation in terms of like layer two validation or ultimately you know, there's a vast different array of different services that can and will be provided in the future of the Chainlink network that we don't necessarily have time to touch over because it's already been, you know, we've already, we've already discussed a lot of topics. So I think I can leave this information to settle in your brain and hopefully you, hopefully you caught, caught most of it, I'm hoping. So yeah, I think we covered a lot of good, good information here. I want to thank you, CEO, for, um, uh, coming on here and helping explain some of the knowledge that you and I have uh, accumulated over the years on Chainlink. Yeah, glad to be here. And I, I think, you know, maybe we should say that we, you know, we might do some daily or some weekly wrap ups on, you know, the, the, the different events happening in the Chainlink ecosystem each week. So you know, be on the lookout. Uh, it's kind of a different format than this particular one. So uh, just knowing that for people who may be interested. Yeah, I think people will be I think they'll be excited to see that. So like some things like this will be more structured. Other pieces of content will be more unstructured of just kind of like what we see in the past week in Chainlink, what's interesting, what, what's interesting in the in the space as a whole. So again, I want to thank you, CL, for coming on here and speaking. And I want to thank all the listeners for, for tuning in and listening for all of these link pills for however long this podcast ends up being. And uh, yeah, I just want to say, everyone, stay based and incredibly link-pilled.